Welcome to the Sports Analytics Podcast, your source of information you can use along your journey in the world of sports analytics. Through interviews with experts and thought leaders, we'll uncover how data science, artificial intelligence, and analysis tools are being used for competitive advantage in sports. We'll also explore industry trends and career opportunities. So now, hold on to your data, folks, because this program is ready to launch. It will take the computer a few moments to compile the information. Here is your host, Terry Frederick. Hello, listeners. Here are the topics we will be covering on the show today. The first one is taking a look back in a little bit of history of salary discrimination in the NBA back in the 80s. It's not what you think. And we'll also take a look at what is the most important thing sports teams can do to leverage this thing called sports analytics. And do you know how big the market is going to be for sports analytics? We'll talk about that during the episode as well. So let's get the show started. I have a very special guest today with me. But we're going to take a different look at sports analytics today, more from a sports economics view. And we're going to do that with my special guest today. He is a professor at Temple University. Uh, He has vast experience in economics of sports, labor economics, and applied microeconomics. He is the co-author of the Economics of Sports book, as well as the Handbook on the Economics of Women's Sports. He has authored numerous refereed journal articles covering sports economics. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Leeds. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let me... uh, Give you just a chance to uh, maybe give give a little more background about yourself that I may not have covered, and then we'll dive into the first topic. Okay. Well, um, I really came to sports economics uh, very accidentally. Um, I am a labor economist by training, and I have um, always uh, had been looking for ways to present material, different ways to present uh, material for my labor economics course. And about 20 years ago, maybe more now, um, I was concerned about teaching uh, an element of labor economics, which can be very, very sensitive in the classroom, and that is discrimination. Um, The uh, MBA was about uh, 80% African-American. Um, and African-American players on average earned significantly more than white players on average. And the question the authors asked was, if you're hiring more black players than white players, if you're paying black players more than you're playing, paying white players, how can we say there is discrimination against black players? And this played beautifully into the economic interpretation of discrimination to the econometric uh, analysis of discrimination, um, which is that you just don't look at group averages. You have to compare likes with likes. You want to compare a 
uh, black player with a white player who are absolutely identical in all ways except the color of their skin. Only then can you say if there's a difference that there is discrimination. And so they found that once you controlled for performance, uh, that there was um, actually a differential going the other way, that black players were underpaid relative to white players of the same ability. And uh, the students just ate this up. They loved it. And I began to be sensitized to uh, looking for articles that used sports to convey uh, issues in labor economics. And I found a bunch of articles that not only were in labor economics, but were also in public finance, were in industrial organization, in all different areas of economics. And I went to my department chair and said, you know, we could make an entire course out of this and it might be attractive. Then um, I was complaining to a a friend, Peter von Allman, um, who's also an economist. And uh, I was saying that I uh, didn't have a textbook and I was having students do one problem with the course was the lack of a textbook. And we wrote a textbook and in writing the textbook, in our research, we found all sorts of um, topics and, and issues that were not fully treated by the literature. And we began, Peter and I both began to do research in this area, and it has taken over my life. From the perspective of sports analytics with, related to that research, what maybe are the top three things that you found? Well, as an economist, right, economists love to talk about markets. And mm -hmm. I would say that by far the most important point about sports analytics and about teams using sports analytics is that they buy you only a temporary advantage that uh, what sports analytics look for really to a great extent is a market failure, especially when we're talking about team sports, that they're looking for some way in which information is not being used or is not being used correctly. And because all sports are um, very imitative, sports teams, sports decision makers are very imitative, once they see an advantage being gained by a team in some way, they're going to follow the band onto the bandwagon. Yeah, I guess that's no different different than the uh, the business world. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got the uh, you got the leaders out there and like oh we need to imitate what they're doing or we'll be left behind exactly and the and and the one of the advantages in the corporate world that you have that you don't have in the sports world is the ability to patent a new process which gives you an extended um, advantage 
Um, but Billy Bean couldn't patent uh, his money ball approach. Uh, the, um, the, the Golden State Warriors weren't able to patent uh, their uh, reliance on three-point shots. And as a result, this advantage is only temporary in nature because other teams are going to jump in. Uh, the Oakland Athletics had a really good run for a number of years in, in, the, in the 1990s and maybe into the early 2000s. But once other teams, especially big market teams, teams like the Red Sox, teams like the Yankees, saw what they were doing and had more money to pour into the process, that wasn't going to last. Mm-hmm. Um, the one uh, biggest example, maybe the best uh, example of, of such a market failure actually doesn't come from um, the world of sports analytics per se, but it relates directly to it, uh, was the color line in baseball. Um, there is uh, perhaps no greater information than the realization that, hey, African-American players are every bit as good as white players. And teams refused to use this information. Baseball teams refused to use this information. Um, Intercollegiate uh, teams uh, from the Deep South refused to use this information. And to the degree that they were able to close themselves off, uh, black teams, uh, 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 Southern teams were able to uh, prevent, to a great extent, interaction with integrated uh, teams from the North and the Far West, that baseball was able to, uh, through its exemption, partly from antitrust laws, was able to close itself off and prevent the entry of competing teams, even competing leagues. Uh, you saw an ability to extend this um, market failure. But once it broke down, it tended to break down very, very quickly. That yeah. once you saw um, a crack in the dike, you know, in the 1947 with the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, teams that didn't integrate, baseball teams that didn't integrate, very quickly fell by the way. Um, it's kind of disguised to a degree by the New York Yankees um, and their great success, but they um, their failures from the mid '60s um, into uh, you know for a decade or more are stem in no small part from uh, their failure to to integrate that the. Uh, Philadelphia Athletics um, had the chance to sign Roy Campanella. And if they had signed Roy Campanella, we may be talking about the Oakland Phillies instead of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, listeners, time for a short break. But before we do that, I have a question for you. The sports analytics market is going to grow 40% by 2026. Do you know what the size of the sports analytics market is estimated to be in dollars by 2026? Find out after the break. You know, in these unprecedented times, 
we're dealing with the world health crisis, I wanted to take a minute and shed some light on a serious issue that was with us before the health crisis and is still a big problem. And that is food insecurity, especially for kids. I just want to mention that if you can, please consider donating to a food bank. FeedingAmerica.org is a great website to find a food bank in your area. You know, no family or child should go hungry. Okay, before the break, I asked what the size of the sports analytics market will be by 2026. Well, according to Allied Market Research, the sports analytics market will grow an estimated 40% to $6.4 billion by 2026. That's a billion dollars, $6.4 billion. With that, there are going to be some great opportunities for sports analytics companies and those seeking careers in sports analytics. Very interesting. Okay, now let's get back to the show and my interview with Dr. Michael Leeds. So moving into kind of what's happening today in the world of athletics and Gosh, we have all this huge amounts of data that's being collected. We, we know that, uh, and I talked about this on my last episode with uh, Ronnie Burrell, who's an assistant coach. Uh, he worked with the Nets last season and got a little insight into all the data that's being collected, the multiple cameras in the arenas, uh, tracking the movements of players, uh, just, just the amount of data from... Uh, being able to use it for, you know, team scouting, player performance. I mean, we're not even touching on the the analytics of contracts. Uh, where 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 do you see we are today, and where we might be heading in the near future with with all this big data and how teams can leverage it? It's it's good that you spoke about basketball because. Um, for many years, um, the more what I'll call static sports, and I think of baseball and football as more static sports, and I'll explain that in a minute, um, as having a, um, an advantage in terms of data analysis um, and using data for sports. Um, because baseball and football tend to consist of what you might think of as set pieces. There's a specific beginning to a play. There's a specific end to a play. Uh, There's something that sets the play in motion, and you can isolate performance within a very um, specific time period. Um, Sports like basketball... Um, uh, soccer, which have more of a flow to them, have always been more difficult to analyze. They're more, in some ways, dynamic. There's more of a f- continuous con- continuity mm-hmm. to the action. And um, as you indicated, these multiple cameras, these um, this ability now to kind of collect uh, data not just on where you were when you took the shot, whether the shot went in, but 
where were the players? Where were the players moving? How was the motion of the players um, affected by what you did? Um, this ability to track all of that is opening up just huge new vistas uh, for analysis in both uh, basketball and soccer. So um, uh, I noticed, uh, excuse me one second, uh, on that point, uh, I was just poking around a little bit, you know, searching in Google for sports analytics companies. And the number of companies that are now uh, popping up, you know, not just the the companies for doing the film study, uh, you know, the, the huddle and the sports code software packages that the NBA uses and college teams use, a synergy. But beyond that, there's companies offering to do that kind of analysis for teams. Absolutely. There's a, a famous saying by uh, Nobel laureate uh, in economics, George Stiegler, that specialization is limited by the extent of the market. And we are seeing a booming market, and you're going to see uh, the entry of lots of uh, analytic uh, companies coming in, uh, seeking to uh, get a hold in very, very uh, you know, markets that just didn't exist before. And, and as the data become available, um, even in, in baseball, you, you see data that people couldn't have imagined even 10 years ago. Um, you know, the, the motion of a pitch, you know, from side to side, up and down. Um, I could tell you uh, exactly uh, what pitch um, uh, Clayton Kershaw threw on August 15th of 2017 in the bottom of the third inning um, to a given batter and what that pitch did and what kind of pitch it was and how it moved and how fast it was and what the speed and arc of the ball was off the bat if the batter connected. Just remarkable the sort of the, the, the advanced uh, analyses you can perform today. It's just incredible that you can just overwhelm or feel overwhelmed by all of this mass of, of information and what do you do with all of it. And uh, something that someone once said that it made a lot of sense to me at the time was you've got to boil it down to a few, if you will, simple rules that um, you can't, as you said, overwhelm players with data because you can't think um, or spend too much time thinking uh, in baseball. You can't spend too much time thinking about policy, right? That you can't sit there and, and wade through everything and worry about getting every last thing right because by the time you figure it all out, the problem may have metastasized or the problem may have gone away on its own accord. All right. In baseball, the ball is going to be by you because you have uh, probably less than a few milliseconds to make a decision whether right. to swing or not. <laughs> right. But if you can break things down and do, okay, 
you've got to swing with more of an uppercut. You've got to start your um, uh, you've got to plant your foot on your on your pitching motion. You've got to kind of boil it down to some simple rules that one makes sense to the person uh, who has to do it and are relatively easy to implement because you're you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, one of the big problems is TMI, right? Too much mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. What do you think the biggest challenges sports organizations face so that they can more fully leverage sports analytics and, and get that, that uh, f- fleeting competitive advantage? We, we, we've gotten past a lot of the low-hanging fruit in terms of market failures. And now they're, you know, looking at, at smaller and smaller margins. So one of the things that I think um, we're we're going to see is that I think you're looking for smaller and smaller edges. So I think the the um, unless there is a basic rule change, and that's always the kind of the big thing uh, to look for when there is some sort of rule change, like, for example, the three-point shot, um, the um, ability to adjust, the ability to um, work around that. And there's a wonderful book, um, and I'm trying to remember the name of the book, Sprawl Ball or something like that. Hmm. It's a wonderful book on, one, how uh, the three-point shot revolutionized the game, but it took two decades to do that. <laughs> and so, um, you know, when you have a, a basic rule change, then you're going to see major adjustments. Right now, you're looking for differences that are probably not going to um, make a huge difference. Uh, it's not going to turn... Um, the Miami Marlins into a world beater. It's not going to make the Sacramento Kings or the New York Knicks NBA champions. Um, it's it's something that's going to uh, move you a, a small ways forward. But I don't see um, analytics in and of themselves being game changers the way they were, say, for the Athletics and Billy Bean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Very, very useful insight. So we're uh, getting to the point here where I probably need to uh, get to the end of our episode here. And But before we go, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for some wonderful insight into uh, you know your views of sports analytics and how it ties into economics. And I think that those connections that, that you shared are, are really interesting. But before we go today, Mike, uh, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, maybe talk a little bit about, uh, you know, Temple University and uh, let our listeners know, uh, you know, the courses that you've got there. Uh, if you wanted to talk about any of your books, uh, just give you a, a couple of minutes to, uh, you know, promote the university and, and, and the wonderful courses you have going there. Oh, well, I mean, again, I think that uh, certainly in, you know, in the, this is a, a very 
you just have to look around. A very interesting time we live in and a very uh, exciting time to be studying economics that um, I taught an economics course for MBAs uh, that ended just a few weeks ago. And uh, we hit this segment on, on macroeconomics just about the time that everything, the wheels were coming off. And uh, you couldn't have asked for a better uh, object lesson, a better learning moment uh, for it. So it's a fascinating, wonderful time to be studying economics. Uh, the economics department at Temple is a very uh, exciting, dynamic, young place. We've gotten very, very young uh, over the last several years. We've got some fantastic young economists uh very, very excellent teachers uh, who have come in in the last couple of years. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that um, it's not just sports economics, but uh, we have uh, wonderful instructors of uh, the economics of education, health economics, international trade, um, public uh, public policy. So it's a very, very exciting time to be studying economics. It's a very exciting time to be studying economics at Temple. Well, with that, do you have any other closing comments before I uh, say goodbye to our listeners for this episode? Well, just that, again, this is um, this has been so much fun talking with you, uh, and in part because it, it uh, com- combines uh, you know, two great loves of mine. One is uh, sport, and the other is economics. And when you can combine the two of them, I mean, it doesn't get any better than this. I tend to agree with you. I, I found uh, these topics fascinating. You know, getting your insight uh, and expertise uh, with what you've done with your research and, and your teaching, uh, just a valuable insight for the show today. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. And perhaps we can well, do this again another time. I'd love to. And that brings us to the end of this episode. But before we leave today, I wanted to share with you three key takeaways from my interview with Dr. Michael Leeds. Number one is using sports analytics buy you only a temporary advantage before other teams catch up. So you must continue to innovate, lead or fall behind. Number two, there are going to be huge new opportunities to leverage sports big data for both sports companies entering the market, and sports analytics professionals. The market is going to boom in in the near future. And the third one is, you've got to boil down the data to a few simple rules players can use that make sense and are easy to implement. All right, that is going to do it for today's show. Please stay tuned for future episodes of my podcast, where I will have guests, including the assistant general manager from the Washington Nationals. I will have the assistant coach from the men's division three basketball team, the number one ranked team in the country, and also the director of sports analytics from the U.S. Soccer Federation. Thank you so much for listening. 